Hi, I'm David Beckett, the host of the Essential Pitch podcast, and I'd like to share with you a personal experience this week, so the episode's a little different. Ten years ago, on May the 23rd, 2011, I published my first book. It's called Amsterdam The Essence. It's a book I'm incredibly proud of, and it really changed my life. And the topic of this week's episode is about following dreams and what happens when you really go for it and you go heart and soul towards something you're passionate about. So it's about following dreams this week. Let's talk to you about Amsterdam, the essence. May 23rd, 2011, the Fabriek, And the former mayor of Amsterdam, Job Cohen, is there Gay rights activists, fire hopeless, tattooist to the stars, Hank Schiffmacher, Ajax legend, uh, Jacques Swart, and one of the most famous com- comedians in the Netherlands, Joop van het Hek, and a whole bunch of other famous and less famous underground characters, artists, politicians. They all came together to celebrate the realization of a dream. That dream was Amsterdam, the essence. It was launched on that day, and I stood proud on stage in front of 150 people and gave the first copy to Job Cohen, as I mentioned, the former mayor of Amsterdam. And at the time, he was the leader of the opposition. He had lost the election by one seat. Yet just 17 days before, I'd been admitted to hospital after a scooter accident that left me with 19 broken bones. So it was pretty much a miracle that I got there in the first place. Let me take you back. My Amsterdam story began in 1998 when I took a job at Canon Europa, their head office uh, in Amstelveen, just outside of Amsterdam. I thought, I'll just go for a couple of years, come to Amsterdam and see how that goes. And uh, I fell in love with the city. I loved the embracing of difference, the creativity, its beauty. It all came together and that made me feel at home. So when my job moved from Amsterdam to London in 2009, it was a really easy decision to stay in Amsterdam. So I'd worked for Canon for over 16 years, Canon, the camera company, and I'd done all kinds of different jobs. I'd done it in three different countries. I'd traveled to 41 countries and had a great experience. But in the last couple of years, I'd really started to burn out of exhaustion of the constant uh, work on that corporate life. And I really had been looking for a bit of a change in my life. I'd actually been writing down every day for six months, I get fired and get a six-month payoff. And luckily, that actually happened. I got fired. My job moved to a different country. And within three seconds of hearing the word London, I realized I'm out of here. Now, it was really fascinating what happened once I left that corporate job, or rather once I decided to leave it. It was a big gap between when the announcement that all those jobs were moving to London and when I actually left. We had a six, seven or eight eight month period to make decisions about do we want to go to London? Do we want to leave the company? Do we want to take a payoff? What we want to look for another job in the company? What, What is it we want to do? For me, it was three seconds. I knew I wanted to make a change. I was 42, halfway through my working life. I'd be working like crazy, day and night, pretty much every day, every week, every month. I worked weekends, I worked evenings, and I worked really hard. Now, I enjoyed my time at Canon, but still, I was getting to the point where that 
never-ending grind of work was getting to be too much. A couple of days before my uh, leaving party, somebody said to me, hey, you're going to have to tell people what you're going to do. So I thought for a bit. I thought, well, okay, I focused a lot on the closing, but what's going to happen next? Okay, um, let's tell them I'm going to travel the world. I feel like going to uh, Australia. Okay, so let's tell them I'm going to do that. Um, I've always wanted to write a book, so let's tell them I'm going to do that. And uh, I'm going to start a coaching company. All right, let's, let's say that too. Honestly, I had absolutely no plan for how to do all three of these. But as I thought about that during the day, I thought, okay, that sounds pretty good. You know, I have one basic principle, which is you can't steer a ship that isn't moving. And the goal was to put some kind of a marker out there to say, okay, I'm sort of going for this direction. Say that publicly and then get started. And so that's what I did. 150 people turned up and I shared those three things. I'm really proud that all three things of those have happened. Naturally, the easiest thing to do was to get traveling, get moving, literally. And so I set off to travel Europe, US. Uh, I went to New Zealand, to Australia, uh, East Island, Tahiti, and I went to South America. Now, I'd originally started with the idea I was going to write a novel about Amsterdam. And I had this idea of a guy turns up in 1965. uh, He's just left school and uh, arrives in Amsterdam at Central Station and goes through some of the turbulent history of of Amsterdam in the 60s and the 70s. I started trying to write that story and realized I was not a novelist. My interest turned to different directions and Honestly, I'd kind of given up the idea of working on a book. I, I didn't quite know what it was going to be about. So I pursued the uh, the travelling part. And away I went. And I arrived after a couple of months in uh, Buenos Aires in Argentina. I absolutely loved that city. And there was a square called Dorigo Square. And there's a market around this square. And at that, uh, there, there was a stand with a lady called Sally Roddy. And Sally Roddy was uh, Irish. She was teaching language skills, uh, English language skills in uh, Buenos Aires. And she'd fallen in love with the city. And she wrote a book called Tango the Truth. And this beautiful little book, self-published, was her way of telling her passion for that city, for the city that she loved. And I bought that book and I sat in a cafe and thought, whoa, this is the kind of book I want to write. I want to write about my passion for Amsterdam. I don't have to make a novel. Why don't I talk about my experiences of Amsterdam? So that's what I started doing. And I can remember sitting in Tahiti, uh, writing some pieces about uh, Queen's Day, about the language, about uh, the canals. And as time went on and we carried on traveling, got to New Zealand, I started reading some of these pieces, did a bit of research online and realized that they were pretty much blog pieces. There were things that had already been written. And so I came to a bit of a brick wall. I thought, well, what have I got to add to this story of Amsterdam? I came back home and I really didn't quite know what to do. There's a picture of me in a shared working space called Tussen de Boche, and I have a computer, a coffee, and nothing else. And I'm sitting there looking hopeful, but really clueless. Because when you work for a big company, you have a kind of a framework, an infrastructure of what you're going to do. I had no real plan, no proper structure. And 
I decided to talk to a couple of friends of mine about this idea of uh, writing a book about Amsterdam and maybe involving some different people. And they absolutely nailed this to the wall and said it was a terrible idea. So I'd got a sort of a rough idea. People really didn't like it. So I thought, well, I have to do something. And I'd been writing a blog while I'd been traveling. So I decided to turn that blog into a book. Now, that kind of bought me a bit of time because I then started learning, well, how do you make a book? What do you do to print a book? How do you design a book? What length is a book? And that gave me a kind of a project to put some of my focus on while I was hunting around for my way to get this real book that I wanted to work on uh, about Amsterdam and, and get clear on what the idea would be. And indeed, as I was preparing that book about my world travels, I landed on something. So here's the first chapter of Amsterdam, the essence, the opening to the chapter. Because what happened is I started finding that it might be interesting to talk to the the fascinating people who make Amsterdam what it is. So here's the first chapter. It's about a lady called Lake Montgomery. As I ambled along the canals on 30th of April 2010, my mind was partly on the development of this book and partly on the fact that my Heineken was getting warm and needed replacing. Now that date, 30th of April 2010, is Queen's Day. 30th of April was a yearly celebration of the monarch's birthday. It starts with a huge open market involving everyone emptying their cupboards and cellars piling everything they can find onto the pavements and selling it for whatever they can get, a euro, a few cents. A distinctive aspect of the experience is also the music. As the day progresses, revelers set up speakers outside their windows, play drums in the street and load disco gear onto boats. Seeing a cool, tiny woman in her mid-twenties playing acoustic guitar in a window on Prinzengracht caught my attention that day. I listened for a few minutes and was especially taken with the song Amsterdam. A friend of hers enthusiastically waved a CD for sale under my nose, bearing the singer's name. Who wouldn't be intrigued by a musician called Lake Montgomery? What a fantastic name, Lake Montgomery. A day later, CD in hand, I checked her MySpace site. Yeah, this was in the days when MySpace still exists. And it became clear that Lake Lake Amsterdam's story is very different to mine. Maybe she could tell me something new about the city. Perhaps she might have an insight into the real essence of Amsterdam. This sparked an idea, and I wrote an email requesting an interview. While waiting for her reply, I began to realise that this might just be the approach for my book that I've been looking for talking to people who represent the crossroads of diversity that is Amsterdam, in order to tell the story of the city from as many different points of view as possible. Lake replied a few days later, and we met at Veche Plain Café on a sunny Amsterdam spring day. And so the journey began. Now what happened was I interviewed Lake, and Lake is a singer-songwriter, She was in her mid-twenties, American, had come to the Netherlands, had started learning the language, had actually lived outside of Amsterdam and then moved into the city and was doing uh, gigs for 50 euros in uh, cafes, uh, street busking and doing some cool stuff. She did a, a 
a living room concert, and that was where the CD had come from, uh, live in Amsterdam, uh, which really sounded very grand, really cool concept to make a CD like that. And I did the interview, and at the end of the interview, I said to Lake, uh, have you got any other suggestions for people that I might talk to? And she said, well, I recommend that you talk to Susanna Raz. Susanna's making a documentary about a band called The Dake. You probably know them. And I do know them. They're the most famous uh, Amsterdam band uh, of the last, uh, yeah, probably ever, actually. And so uh, she was making this documentary, and she's a filmmaker. So I spoke to uh, Susanna and did an interview with her. At the end, she said to me, oh, you should talk to Pim. He's the keyboard player of the Dake, but he's also a photographer. He takes these beautiful black and white photographs of the city, and I'm sure he would be interested to talk to you. Maybe he'd like to put some photographs in the book. Now, what that led to is that uh, uh, Pim and I worked together over the, the period of the book, and there are uh, around 30 of his photographs in the book. They were the first ones published, or the first time he had his pictures uh, published. And they're really beautiful, very fascinating, black and white uh, capture, moment, moment captures of Amsterdam. And uh, I'm really proud that I had his bo- uh, pictures first published in my book. He's gone on to publish his own uh, books. He's had a- exhibitions and uh, his photographs are really fantastic. Check him out. It's Pim Cops, P-I-M, M for mother, and then K-O-P-S. Gradually, I found more people to interview. Each time I interviewed somebody, I'd say, hey, who would you suggest? I then got the uh, editor of Time Out magazine, and then she suggested somebody else. And as I started uh, blogging about my experiences of uh, interviewing these interesting people, I started getting recommendations. There was Bob, who uh, worked with me in the same uh, shared office space at Tussen de Boche, and he said, I should definitely interview Def P. He's a lead singer of a, a band. It's called the Osdot Posse. He's been in that band for years. They're really Amsterdam. And uh, I thought, well, that sounds interesting. But how do I get in contact? Oh, I know him. He's my neighbor. Um, I'll put you in contact. So indeed, I met with uh, Def P. And Def P and I have had very different lives. And uh, his uh, actual name, his real name is Pascal Griffioun. Uh, but let's call him Def P, because that's how he goes as a, an artist. And he's a rapper, he's a musician, and he's a painter. And he had a little studio in the Jordan at the time. I went to that studio and got talking with him. It turned out he'd just come back from a world trip. And recently, he's also published his own book about that world trip. I'll share you the links uh, in, in, the, in the notes. Uh, Def P uh, has had an amazing life uh, yeah, the full rock and roll story. And uh, he's had a major part to play in my future life. And I'll tell you that about that a little bit later. Uh, but it was fascinating to hear a person who had really grown up, uh, experienced Amsterdam life, had had that music band and had a, a music life uh, in the city. And it uh, also uh, done a lot of graffiti. He'd uh, done a lot of paintings about Amsterdam. And he even painted uh, a beautiful piece uh, around the topic of the essence of Amsterdam. And I have that in my kitchen right now, something I'm really proud of. Now, when I left Canon, I shared a lot of things that I'd learned in those years. And I showed a piece 
from uh, an anonymous street artist called Laser 3.14. I started seeing his stuff around Amsterdam in 2006 and 2007. He has short tags, thought-provoking statements, and he's normally tagging places which are being renovated. So he's not ruining public spaces. He's adding something to a public space that's already in uh, change in renovation. And one of those pieces that I quoted at my leaving party was, what use these wings if they refuse to fly? That phrase had really landed in my head because I thought, if I just go to London with this job, all that will happen is I'll just continue the same cycle, the budget cycle, the new product cycle, the launch event cycle, the hiring, the uh, reorganization, the sales targets, the... You know, that would just be continuing that cycle. But I felt I had something else in me. I felt that I had more passion and more creativity than I was showing in my working life. And so that phrase really stuck inside me. What use these wings if they refuse to fly? And Laser had seemed a person that was really 100 miles away, 1,000 million miles away from my life. Here he was, anonymous street artist, uh, tagging the streets of Amsterdam. Here I was, suit and tie, working in Canon. But I thought, hey, maybe he's got an email address. Maybe he's got a website. Who knows? So I searched and found, indeed, there is a contact. How do you contact an anonymous street artist? Well, let me read you the introduction to that chapter on the book. I wanted to talk with him about his view of Amsterdam, but how do you get in contact with an anonymous street artist? Hang around a construction site long enough to find him at work? Interrupt and say, uh, sorry to bother you, Laser. Uh, Do I call you Laser? But um, would you be interested in a chat? Even a secretive artist wants to showcase his work, and sure enough, he has a website with a contact email address. I sent in my introduction message and a 10-line summary of this book. In response, I received the following. Hi, David. Thanks for your mail. I'm in. Cheers. L314. Right. On the one hand, success. On the other, what happens next? And what's with the Callisto Green email address? That was where the email came from. After more similarly cryptic correspondence, we agree to meet at a cafe on a Saturday at lunchtime. However, I still don't know what he looks like. I wait outside and imagine each passerby to be him. Is he the colourful junkie-like hippie? No. The rapper hoodie? Think again. The cute girl in the yellow t-shirt with F. Wilders on it? Definitely not. Finally, a very cool-looking figure locks his bike on the corner of the street, strolls towards me, raises their eyebrows, unbeknownst to me, he's seen me before, and with the slightest nod of the head, he indicates that I should go inside. We sit at the back of the cafe, and I'm face to face with my anonymous Amsterdam hero. This connection turned into something really special, as I got to know him, And of course, I can't reveal his identity or his name, but uh, I can tell you that the man man behind, and it's clear it's a man, the man behind the L314, the Laser 3.14 persona, is a really great person. And we made a uh, a documentary, a two-minute movie about him, uh, 
how do you make a movie about an anonymous street artist? The same way you contact him, you somehow work it out. And uh, it became a, a, a really cool thing. Uh, he also created a, a beautiful artwork for a very special occasion for me in the future, which I'll share with you later. But this was an example of how my life in Canon and the lives of the people who were making Amsterdam what it is were going in completely different directions and then they collided because I was following this passion for writing a book. You know, for years I've been saying, I'd love to have time to write a book. But now I had the time. So I really had a chance to make a decision. And I figured, okay, either I do it, either I do what I say I wish I had the time to do, or I stop saying it. And so I went down this path, started following this passion, and found these fascinating people. Recommendations were coming in from all sides, and my friend Sylvia said, oh, if you're writing about Amsterdam, you've got to have hanky-panky. Pardon? What do you mean I've got to have hanky-panky? Well, it turns out that hanky-panky is the name uh, that Hank Schiffmacher sometimes goes by. Hank Schiffmacher is the tattooist to the stars. So if you've ever seen those pictures of the Red Hot Chili Peppers with not much on except a sock, you'll notice that there's some tattoos. That is Hank Schiffmacher's work. Robbie Williams has been done uh, by him, and all kinds of musicians have been to Hank Schiffmacher's uh, tattoo parlour. Now, Hank is kind of a a mixture between a yeti and a hell's angel. He looks huge and scary and uh, he's really potentially a very brutal, but also very uh, kind and friendly kind of character. Brutal tends to win in that battle, but uh, there's definitely a kind edge to the person as well. He's done all kinds of work for charity, and uh, he's also uh, written books about the history of tattoo art. And I went to his studio and honestly it felt like I was just entering this completely different world. I'd never had a tattoo. I didn't know anybody that had tattoos. And his tattoo parlor on Centurban, uh, which was just very close to where I lived, was really a fascinating little world. And uh, the, he, we also made a movie about him. Uh, so I'm going to share with you the links of all these uh, different pieces a little bit later with the, uh, uh, with the show notes. So how did this book really change my life? Because firstly, there were a lot of great experiences. I was experiencing a more creative life. Uh, I was focusing on creating something for its own sake, art for art's sake. There was no real specific purpose for it. Of course, I hoped that some people would buy it, but I was very realistic. I knew that people wouldn't, uh, probably the chance of getting a, a bestseller, making thousands, tens of thousands of euros out of this book was really almost no chance. But I did believe that if I followed this path, something would happen along the way that would make that change that I was looking for. And sure enough, some of those things happened. And here's the first one. Along the way, I decided I needed to improve my writing. And so I went to a writer's group from a guy called Matthew Curlewis, Amsterdam Writers. And he created a, a concept of giving you an, uh, a kind of a safe space to go and write. He would give you some prompts, uh, say, give you a few words or give you an idea. And then you would just simply write down for 10 or 15 minutes on that topic. And then if you felt like it, 
you could read that out to your colleague writers, to your fellow writers. There was about eight or ten people at the Binger Institute getting together and doing this uh, very creative thing. Uh, also, a little bit art for art's sake, but with a, a bit of a serious edge. We were all trying to r- make some kind of impact with our writing, whether that meant personal impact or something more or looking for work with writing. It was, there were a lot of different ambitions. Now, of course, my ambition was to make my book the best book it could possibly be. And on the first day, September the 14th, 2011, I walked in and I met a lady called Sheila. And Sheila would become a very big part of my life. Little did I know that Sheila would become my wife. And by following this passion, I got into uh, this writer's group and I came in contact with Sheila and the story went on from there. So if I hadn't uh, gone for that book, I'm pretty sure that there was no chance of, uh, of, of meeting Sheila. And you know, it turned out to be a person that I wanted to be in a team with and that she wanted to be in a team with me. Team's really important for me. That word team, I'd been very focused on that in Canon. I always wanted to make the best team in Canon. That was my goal as a manager. And when I met her and we teamed up, it just seemed to fall into place. And uh, although we had a few rocky times to start off with, uh, after a few months, we seemed to fall into a really good rhythm together and started really enjoying each other's company. We both enjoyed writing. We both enjoyed reading. We loved sitting in cafes and reading. We loved movies. We loved music and all those shared experiences. Uh, but that, especially that passion for writing really mattered. You know, I'd had a previous girlfriend who said to me once, why do you write? And I think if you're into writing and somebody that you're close to asks that, in a, not so much in a curious way, but more like in a why would you bother kind of way, then you're struggling. But Sheila was also uh, fascinated by by writing. Uh, she'd already had a book, which she'd written some years before, which had sold 15,000 copies. And uh, she appreciated that if you're focused on writing, then that's the only thing you want to do. And she appreciated that I understood that too. So that was the starting point of the biggest change of my life. Now, once I had a piece of advice um, from a friend of mine, and she said, you know, the best way to meet a life partner is to do things that you love doing. You know, going and trying to find somebody in a bar, what's that going to help you? You you won't find the right person. But if you do things you're passionate about, there's a really good chance that you'll meet somebody that you really like. So thanks for that advice, Chantal, uh, Chantal Timmer. And that advice has stuck with me over those years. And although I didn't take it exactly when she gave it, which was, I think, in the early 90s, sorry, the late 90s, um, eventually I realized the wisdom of that advice. So the first big change was that I met Sheila and yeah, neither of us are the people to hurry with making decisions, but within a year, uh, we had got married. So let's, uh, uh, a big, big change in my life. And 10 years on, we're absolutely delighted to be together. Now, there were a couple of other things that happened as a result of doing the book. 
I realised at a certain moment it might be handy to have a kind of a combination of pretty famous people and not famous at all. Now, to get hold of some famous characters, I thought it might be smart to look for some help. And so I was recommended a PR specialist called Anique van der Hulst. And Anique really is a master at this whole story. And let me demonstrate how that works. So I set up a hit list, kind of a target list of people that I would like to have uh, on uh, uh, to be interviewed for the book. And you notice I had a Freudian slip there because I almost said on the podcast. And today, if it had been uh, a project uh, that I was doing now, I would be making this a podcast as well as a book. Uh, But uh, podcasts didn't exist, or if they did, they were hardly popular at that time. So I I was looking for these characters to be in the book, and Anique was really good at getting them. So, for example, one of those was Job Cohen. He had been the mayor of Amsterdam for quite some years during some uh, very... Uh, big events in Amsterdam. He was really well respected as that mayor. And then three months before I, I met him, uh, we were uh, he was uh, moved on or he decided to move on and became the leader of the Labour Party, the PVDA, uh, the Partei von der Arbeit. Uh, and uh, that had expect, everyone expected him to become the prime minister, but he missed by one seat. So he just missed out uh, from Rutte, who is currently the Prime Minister now. And uh, that uh, change, you know, that was a kind of a key moment for him because it seemed like he was almost destined to become uh, Prime Minister. But he still made time to talk with me. But to get that opportunity to talk with him, I needed Anique's help. She chased through and she would call to the, uh, the House of Parliament and she would say, uh, I would like to speak to Job Cohen, please. And they said, oh, that's, that's, this is not his uh, number. And she would say, well, I was given his number and I thought this was it. Could you put me through? And before we knew it, she was uh, talking to the secretary of Job Cohen. Then she, uh, the secretary called back and Anique was sitting next to me one day when that call came in. And she picked up the phone and said, uh, oh, yes, uh, we, we'd love to make the appointment with uh, Mr. Cohen. And I heard this and thought, oh, my goodness. <laughs> you mean we're actually going to get him on the, uh, on the book or in the book? And she said, uh, OK, uh, 21st of September. All right. Uh, let me see if Mr. Beckett is available. And she held the phone away from her ear, smiled at me. And I'm saying, come on, say yes, say yes. <laughs> just agree and she said just calm down and then said yes mr beckett is available at that time he'll be delighted to meet mr cohen and then we made the deal so it was really cool how she behaved as if we were the ones in power we were the ones who were giving him the opportunity to be (laughs) interviewed even though i was absolutely nobody and he was the uh, the head of the labor party head of the major opposition so I got to go to the uh, the Houses of Parliament, and in order to feel confident, because I was extremely nervous, I asked my friend Morton to come along with me. Uh, Job Cohen has great English, but I thought it would be pretty handy if there was a, somebody who, A, I knew really well, and I've known Morton all the time that I've been in Amsterdam and even before that, and secondly, somebody who could speak Dutch, and Morton is Danish but speaks really great Dutch. 
So I thought this was a great combination. And so he and I went off to the Dutch Houses of Parliament and we sat in Job Cohen's room and talked about his experiences of Amsterdam. An amazing experience for myself, I must say. Then uh, Anik managed to get hold of Joop van het Hek. Now, Joop is the, uh, one of the two most famous comedians in the Netherlands and a pretty sparky character. Not the most comfortable person to be around, I must say. I, I didn't understand half of what he was saying in the terms of the Dutch jokes. He did the interview in English. He did ask for somebody to be there, so Anik was there. And I had a really fascinating talk with him. I sat at the Omselveld, the cafe outside, sitting there. And, you know, for me, it was a kind of a weird thing because I knew he was famous, but I didn't really feel that sense of fame. And Amsterdam is a pretty... Uh, brutal people they 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 don't pay too much attention to fame if they see somebody who's been on the tv their attitude is yeah you've been on the tv doesn't make you any better than me but i must say when we were sitting outside of the cafe doing the hour and a half interview it was noticeable that people really paid attention to you Heck. and then i kind of realized okay this is actually a really famous person which i hadn't probably appreciated uh, before i did the interview it was a really interesting interview and uh, learned a lot again about a different aspect of Amsterdam. And uh, at the end, near the end of the interview, he said, OK, I need to go to the toilet. He went off to the toilet and he left his phone out on the table. And Anik is a PR person. And she looked at me and she looked at this phone and she said, I'm going to steal his phone. I said, you can't do that. And she said, yeah, but he's got the numbers of Everybody who's anybody in that phone. And I could see, here's a really decent person. You know, Anik is an amazing, extremely honest person with loads of integrity. But I could see that she was taken over the line by the prize that was hidden away in that phone. And I said, well, what do you mean he knows everybody? And she said, yeah, she knows, he knows Shaq Swart. He knows this person, that person. I said, Shaq Swart, that's Mr. Ajax, right? She said, yeah. I said, well, Maybe he can introduce us. She said, okay, I'll ask him. So when he came back from the, tele- from the toilet, she said, uh, I bet you've got a, quite a few numbers in that phone, haven't you? And he wanted to be a bit cool and said, yeah, I've got quite a few. And she said, I bet you've got Shaq Swart's number, haven't you? Yeah, I've got Shaki's number, he said. And so she dared him. Well, can you call him? Because we actually want to interview him. Maybe he can join us next week. And he said, okay. And on the spot, he called Shaq Swart. Now, just to put a bit of insight, Shaq Swart played in that amazing Ajax team of the late 60s and early 70s. Played many times for the Netherlands. He was in the same team as Johan Cruyff and is seen as even more an icon of Ajax history than Johan Cruyff because he spent his whole career there. And uh, uh, a week later, as a result of that phone call, you know, Joop calls him up and says, Hey, Sharky. And uh, says, yeah, there's these people they want to interview uh, interview you. What, what do you think? It's about a book about Amsterdam. Seems like a cool thing to do. And uh, he agreed. So I got to go to the training ground for uh, Ajax Amsterdam. And uh, I was waiting for Shaq Swart. And in the distance, I saw Dennis Bergkamp. Now, anybody who's in, interested in football, Bergkamp is an amazing footballer. Yeah, I'm a Manchester United supporter. He played for Arsenal. But still, he was a legend, and I saw him in the distance, and honestly, I, I, I started 
almost shaking. It was it was quite a moment to see uh, somebody who I'd seen so many times scoring so many goals, unfortunately sometimes against uh, Manchester United, uh, and who was such a, a legend, uh, just sitting there and having a chat with some of the players. And then Shark came along and we had a great talk. And was really a, a great experience to get connected with these people and the way that things just moved on. You know, Anique brought her skills. Uh, I would ask somebody, hey, can you introduce me? And before we knew it, we had more than 20 interviews in the bag. Now, let me sh- tell you how the interviews happened. I would record them. So we would meet in a cafe. I would have a, a coffee, coffee for kid, as they'd call a latte in uh, Netherlands, and an orange juice. And uh, I would take a, a recorder, a voice recorder, and I'll play a few little clips of the uh, recordings along the way. The quality is really bad, by the way, because I just put it on the table in between me and them. And it was a little pocket recorder simply to capture the, the, the story so that I didn't have to make notes. But what happens is if you have a chat for an hour and a half, you record something like seven to 11,000 words. And you've got to transcribe all those words. I mean, you've got to listen and type. It takes hours. Once you've transcribed it, you need to edit it down to roughly two to two and a half thousand words. So the next step would be after I'd transcribed it, I'd just pick out the chunks that seem to uh, be interesting for the audience. Then I would get from those two to two and a half thousand words, and then you'd have to mold it into some kind of a, uh, a logical flow and, uh, and create the chapters. And this was really a phenomenal amount of work. I spent about eight months following my passion, doing great interviews, fascinating interviews with really interesting people, the people who make Amsterdam what it is. I interviewed Halina Rein, who's a, a, a Hollywood actress. I met Mariska Mayo. She's a, a, a former prostitute and has a prostitution information center in the center of the red light district. And she uh, arranged that I would sit in her mock-up red light district window in, uh, in an evening for a couple of hours. Fascinating experience, I can tell you. I have one or two pictures of that. We don't show those too often, but uh, hey, it was quite an experience to sit on uh, that side of the window. Uh, I got to interview, uh, as I say, Nina Siegel, who was the uh, uh, who was the editor of Time Out Amsterdam at the time, and also writing a book about Rembrandt, and uh, Fire Hopeless, who was a, a, a gay rights activist and created a, a whole protest movement against what was becoming an alarming uh, tendency towards violence against gay people in Amsterdam. It was a small tendency, but that small amount was enough. And she managed to get thousands of people to walk through the city. I joined that protest, the first protest of my life, and it was great to be part of that, to stand up for something. Now, as you can feel, my life had been going in such a different direction from uh, the previous corporate uh, world. You know, the suit and tie was gone. 
Uh, I was wearing jeans, t-shirt every day. I was writing, I was creating blogs, I was uh, making movies, we made documentaries of it. I worked with a guy called Philo, uh, and Philo and I managed to make four documentaries. I learned a lot from him about how you ask questions to get a certain kind of answer, and how to uh, frame and and structure a two-minute movie. And uh, was really, I'm really proud of the quality that he generated, really impressed by the quality he generated. Those movies are uh, really something. And uh, so I'll post the links of those as well. Uh, we made one of Lake, one of, uh, of Henk, one of Laser 3.14. And we also filmed Jupfanet Heck. He wrote a piece called At Last of Wood, The Last Word. And yeah, Yoop is a man with an answer for everything. So he was really well known for having the last word. So we thought it would be great if he could write a piece about Amsterdam, uh, which would be the last word. And then we asked if we could film him, read it. And amazingly, he said yes. So there is a movie of him reading this two-minute piece. Uh, It's a kind of ode to the the goods and the bads of Amsterdam, Uh, a beautiful piece. So it's a great experience to be focusing on this uh, pure creative part. I worked with a designer called Sarah Lochran, and uh, Sarah Lochran was a fantastic designer, and uh, she created a brilliant layout for the book, worked tirelessly to make it all something special, and uh, was one of a a whole host of people that gave me uh, a lot of support. Now, the Helena Rain. Uh, let me say that properly, Halina Rain. Uh, she is an actress who has wor- worked with Tom Cruise and been in all kinds of uh, movies, the best stage shows in uh, in the Netherlands. And uh, she was somebody we managed to get hold of, and she agreed to come and be interviewed by uh, by me. I'm just going to sip a bit of coffee, a bit of coffee for Kiert. And... Uh, I thought, well, this is somebody who's really a Hollywood actress. Maybe we should get some decent photographs of her. Up to then, I hadn't paid too much attention to photographs. I thought, okay, we'll work that out later. I don't really know what pictures we're going to have. I'll ask them for their kind of scrapbook pictures um, at some stage, and we'll work it out. I'll just focus on getting the interviews. But with Helena, I thought, okay, who do I know who's a good photographer? My friend Joost. Joost von Manen had worked at Canon as well had left to become a photographer, and he's a fashion photographer. Quite a brilliant one, by the way. Uh, And Joost came along with me, and we decided to uh, meet her. We met her at the the Stadtschauberg Theatre, and we'd arranged to meet in the cafe. So Joost and I arrive at at the time, actually half an hour early. We take a look around the place. We think about where to take photographs and so on. We, We really prepare... I think even we might have been there an hour early. So the time ticked by, and then the time for Helena to arrive uh, came and went. And more time passed, and a bit more time. And as time went on, we started to realise she wasn't going to show up. And after about an hour, we started ordering drinks and started getting drunk. And, you know, what else are you going to do? So I must say I was really disappointed, but we got talking. And Yo said to me, why didn't you ask me to take some photographs sooner? And I thought, well, I didn't know you wanted to be part of this. He said, absolutely, I'd love to be part of it. And as a result, Yost ended up doing uh, around 15 photo shoots. So we got some photos from 
the people that had some professional shots already. But we managed to get one kind of style, which is Yost's really uh, incredibly creative style. And uh, a lot of the photo shoots are done by him. Uh, we went again back to the two comps. We did, uh, uh, we managed to shoot uh, great pictures of Jacques Swart. We shot great pictures of Hank Schiffmacher. And it was a really fantastic experience to do all of those fo- photo shoots retrospectively with the ones that I had already interviewed. And then he came along to a couple of the interviews. For example, Jan Janssen, an amazing shoe designer, uh, he came along. And we also did uh, some in his studio. So really fashion shots. Jan Janssen has these incredibly creative uh, shoes that he's designed and uh, has been doing that since the 70s. Uh, so we did a proper photo shoot and uh, that, that really worked very beautifully. Uh, so there's a strong visual element of the book, uh, and Yost uh, was a really big part of that. So along the way, I started gathering this kind of team of people who were all part of this story, and it became much bigger than I'd even dreamed of. You know, it became something that people were a part of, and uh, it started to get a kind of a life of its own. And as time moved on, we got closer to the deadline that I'd set of launch. And I'd had eight months to spend my time drinking coffee, uh, drinking orange juice, talking to these fascinating people. But at a certain moment, I realized I need to finish this thing. I took a look at the uh, all the chapters. There were 25 chapters I'd targeted. And I thought, OK, let's just look at all the different stages. So you have to do the interview, uh, transcribe it, edit it, do a proofread, a final edit and the design. And I looked at what have we done for the various chapters of this book. And uh, in classic Canon fashion, I made an Excel file. And I made an Excel file with a sort of traffic lights, like uh, green, red, and amber. If something was in progress, it was amber. If it wasn't done yet, red and green, it was already done. And I did this matrix on the Excel file, and there was so much red red in it. I'd already been working eight months uh, on it and had four months ago before the deadline of submitting the the print manuscript. And I realized now the hard work starts. And I must say, it was really hard work to take those uh, transcriptions. And I hired somebody to do those transcriptions. Thanks, Ian, for doing that. And uh, I would take the the text, but then really had to chisel away uh, at the work. And Writing was just really, really hard. But, you know, every day I would force myself to get started. I'd target a certain number of words to get down on the page of edited uh, interview. And uh, as time went by, I managed to uh, chisel out (laughs) piece by piece the book. Now, what was fascinating was that I hired an editor. I hired a proofreader. And Sarah put it all into uh, design. And finally, uh, we had a kind of a final version to do a final proofread. Now, I hadn't asked Sheila to be involved in this, and there's some personal reasons for that uh, for Sheila. Uh, but uh, Sheila had had a, t- a pretty horrible experience five months before. Uh, not a pretty horrible experience. Maybe the one of the most horrible experiences you can have. Um, before I met her, she decided to have a child uh, on her own. And uh, she'd found a donor, somebody that she felt 
comfortable with uh, as a donor and had uh, gone ahead, planned everything, decided to have a child on her own, and her little boy was going to be called Zecher. And indeed he was. He was born uh, on May 15th, 2010, and completely healthy. He was at home, and within 24 hours, very, very sadly, a bacteria attacked him, and he uh, passed away. And you can imagine, if any of you have had children, can you imagine how that might feel? You know, you come up to this amazing adrenaline of, of having given birth, and it's happened, and you've got that beautiful child, and it, everything's gone fine. The child is healthy, and then you come down and find that the child is, uh, has passed away. And that, that feeling of, of yeah, total total loss, total anticlimax of, of disaster must have been beyond anything that anybody can ever imagine. And Sheila, instead of sitting at home and banging her head against the wall, had forced herself to go out, do guitar lessons, uh, to do singing lessons, and to go to the writers' group. Now, when I met her, I didn't know about this. And within a couple of weeks, I started to find out. I've never experienced grief like that. You know, nobody who is really close to me uh, has passed away. I lost a grandparent, uh, two grandparents, uh, my nana and my grandfather, but they were 86 and 93. Of course, I was sad, but it, it wasn't, I couldn't honestly say that I had that kind of deep grief. I was sad, but I'm not sure if it was really deep grief because they had big lives. They were very, you know, great people. But Sheila had had this tragedy happen. And uh, over the, the months, she was starting to recover from that, but hadn't been working. And so I didn't want to put pressure on her. But it turned out that she is a final editor. And so that weekend, Easter 2011, we sat together on the roof of my apartment in Amsterdam, and we went through the manuscript. And despite the fact that I'd had an editor and a proofreader, Sheila found hundreds of changes. And they were all changes that needed to be made. There were changes in consistency, in, uh, in grammar, in spelling, in accuracy, in all kinds of things. And uh, she brought her amazing skill to this book. And so that weekend, we spent something like 31 hours going through the manuscript and uh, making it finally something that really hung together as a, a, as a proper manuscript. Now, the 65,000 words, if I remember rightly, or 59,000, I've lost count these days, but uh, it was quite something. It was a big book and going through every word piece by piece. Uh, that was a, an amazing job, but between us, we managed to make those changes. And thanks to she- Sheila's expertise, I don't think it looks like a, a self-published book. That combination of Sarah's design, of Yost's photographs, uh, of the people we had and the fascinating interviews, and Sheila's uh, determination to make it in terms of text, really uh, a, a properly edited book, it really hung together and it became an amazing thing. And then the disaster struck. You know, I had been working on the book day and night, probably 16 hours a day, and uh, wasn't sleeping properly. And on May the 6th, I had to 
uh, go to the printer and I dropped off the uh, the manuscript a few days before and then I'd gone to the printer to see the book being printed and it was a moment where it was kind of done you know the book was finished there was a gap between that date and when the launch event would be so I decided okay let's take my scooter and just go for a ride and get a bit of air get some air for your head I went off to the beach had dinner and started riding back as dusk fell and on the way back I fell asleep so I fell asleep on my scooter and crashed the next thing I remember is waking up and there's a circle of people around me and people saying Mr Beckett Mr Beckett can can you hear us and I was taken in the ambulance to the hospital and the hospital said it seems you've broken three or four bones and so I called Sheila and said it's okay don't worry it seems like I've uh, broken uh, two. Actually, they said first two or three bones. And while I was on the phone, they said, we think it might be three or four. In the days after, I was in such pain. And uh, Sheila dropped everything. She came to sit by my side. And I was in the hospital. Uh, and she sat with me 14 hours a day from eight in the evening, eight in the morning rather, until 10 at night. And uh, it was a pretty horrible experience because... It turned out that I hadn't broken two or three or four bones. I'd broken 19. And there were eight vertebrae um, along uh, along the way. Uh, now, breaking a vertebrae, that sounds pretty dramatic, had I broken my back. And vertebrae have these small uh, bits, sort of little wings on them, and they had broken. Uh, so it, luckily, it wasn't enough to cause any disability, but apparently it was a bit close. So I had 19 bones in total broken. There were eight ribs, my shoulder bone, and uh, those vertebrae. And a couple of those bones were even broken twice. But what was amazing was that Sheila stopped her life and sat with me every day, 14 hours, for the next 12 days. Because as time moved on, they realized how many bones I'd broken. And uh, I couldn't move. It felt like I was almost, yeah, felt almost dead. Felt I felt like 150 years old. And uh, gradually, gradually, I started getting better. But it was such a a great thing that Sheila was there because I felt negative every morning. You just feel horrible. If you're in pain, they're giving, giving you loads of morphine. Across those t- 12 days, I started getting a little healthier, a little stronger. But that was really thanks to Sheila being there on each of those days. And as I say, I wake up really negative, feeling low, feeling just horrible. The day of the launch was getting closer. I couldn't feel there was any improvement. And then Sheila would come in and I would be able to start talking. She would bring me back to that positive mindset instead of a negative mindset. And during the day, as I had various treatments or the doctors came, she was always there. And this is something I will be eternally grateful for. And, you know, I looked for that teammate over the years. And finally, I had somebody that I knew I could completely rely on who would never let me down. Thanks, Sheila, for being my teammate in that time while I was in hospital. It will never be forgotten. And thanks for all the support over the last decade. And I'm delighted we're going to be supporting each other to infinity and beyond. Now, the doctors had expected me to be in hospital for close to a month. But within 12 days, thanks to everything that Sheila did for me and for the amazing health care from the hospital over there in Beverwijk, I was able to come out in a much shorter time. 
Then the task was to prepare the launch party. A lot of work had been going on while I was in hospital. But in those days uh, after I came out, it was really a, just a non-stop blur of work. And uh, we managed to put it together as a team. I got a lot of help from uh, all kinds of friends, Siobhan, Sonny and Peter, especially Anik was working like crazy. And everyone got together. We put the thing together. We we had the an empty room in the Vestachasfabrik. We put up graphics, lights, sound, uh, and Def P and his band came and played. Bas Costas, who is a, a fashion icon uh, in Amsterdam, fashion designer. He's also a DJ. So he did a DJ set, especially for the event, bringing along dancers who were all dressed in his amazing fashion creations. It was quite an event. Job Cohen came and received the first book. Chuck Swart was there. Pim showed his pictures. Uh, we had laser uh, artwork. We had a beautiful gallery of all those portraits by Yost. And we'd even persuaded Canon to donate the possibility to print some great big graphics on their big wide printers. Uh, so that kind of closed the circle for me too. It was an amazing experience, 150 people there. My mum travelled over from England to be at the launch and so did my brother. The press covered it, and even the Amsterdam TV network called Arte Faith came along and filmed it. I must say it was kind of weird because in the weeks afterwards, I went to a couple of shops and one or two people said to me, hey, haven't I seen you? Because the piece that they filmed was repeated on Arte Faith. They don't have so much content, so they tend to repeat pieces again and again across the day. So this piece about this book had been shown quite often and anybody who was watching Arte Faith would have seen my face. So they had some kind of weird feeling like I was famous or something. A million miles from it but you know it was kind of my few minutes of fame. I then set about selling the book and we had at one stage uh, 21 shops around Amsterdam uh, selling it. Uh, we did manage to get a couple of thousand copies out there and I'm really proud of how it had a presence for a period of time uh, all around the city of Amsterdam. And in the weeks after there was one more big change that came for my life. So I talked to uh, Pascal, that's Def P, from the Osdorp Posse, and he said to me uh, a few weeks after the launch, uh, my wife is pregnant. And I must say it was a bit of a, an eye-opener for me. I wondered, well, that's, that's amazing. Def P's going to be a daddy. I wonder if I could be a daddy too. And, you know, Pascal had had a pretty amazing life. He, he openly... Uh, explains about that classic rock and roll uh, uh, lifestyle and he uh, had one of his paintings had been a, a painting of a guy who had invented LSD and Pascal said to me you know I had to do a tribute to him when he passed away because I had so many good times on LSD and uh, you know my life and Pascal's have been in two completely different directions but again our lives had collided you know, he'd had the world trip, I had a world trip, we had something in common, we loved Amsterdam, and he was a great supporter, and very positive about the whole thing, came and played with his band totally for free at the event, uh, made me that painting, you know, I'm always eternally grateful to his, for his uh, enthusiasm, a person who had had a lot of success with his band, and yet he saw a young person, not so young, actually, let's say a new person, a person new to the creative world, trying to make something. And he supported that. He believed in that. So he said, my wife is pregnant. And then he said to me, you know, I've tried everything in my life to get a kick. Now I'm going to get the biggest kick of all. 
And that really stuck in my mind. And away I went with that thought in my head. If Def P could be a daddy, what about me? And I hadn't spoken to Sheila about having kids. I'd pretty much decided that I wasn't going to go for children. But this just stuck in my head. And I went for a drink with a friend of mine, with Rahir. Talking of a drink, I'm going to take a bit of coffee. And Rahir and I had had conversations about becoming a parent before. And I'd always said, I'm really not the right person. I'm too selfish. I'm, I don't think I'll be patient enough. don't think it's going to work. And then I went to Rohir and explained, well, I spoke to Def P. He's going to get, he's going to have a kid. And I think maybe I might like to talk to Sheila about that. And Rohir said, you're joking, right? I said, no, I, I, I think I'm going to talk to her about it. He said, let, let me get this straight. You have a chat with a rapper. And as a result of that, you think you're going to be a daddy. And I said, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah, that's about it. So he asked me a lot of difficult questions. He decided to be devil's advocate. He really wanted to hunt around. I think it's a good friend who does this. He wanted to hunt around in my psyche a little bit to find out what was really behind all this and is this a genuine wish. And he also pointed out, you know, you don't want to be do this lightly. If, you, if you're going to talk to Sheila, who has lost a child, about having one, you need to be absolutely sure. But I went through the process and I came to the conclusion, yes, I want to have kids. I went home, talked with Sheila about it, and indeed, we got started and started raising a family. And uh, uh, within a few months, Sheila had become pregnant. And uh, a couple of years later, uh, she became pregnant again. And now we have two fantastic kids, uh, one of whom is nearly nine, one of whom is six, And both of them are full of energy, full of creativity. They love books. They love music. And uh, we're incredibly proud of them. Uh, We love them very, very dearly. Uh, Kids, I'm really super, super happy, incredibly happy that I had that conversation with Def P. Because without that conversation, I don't think we would have gone ahead. And let's take that further back. Without that decision to go for this creative project, there wouldn't have been... Uh, the meeting with Sheila, and there wouldn't have been that discussion with Def P, and there wouldn't have been kids. So let's take this right back to the very beginning. Because that book, you know, I went on to sell a couple of thousand copies. I Amsterdam, the marketing organization for uh, Amsterdam, uh, gave 350 copies of, of that book to their partners. They saw it as, a, as such a great icon of Amsterdam culture that they shared it with their partners. So I, I'm incredibly proud of that book. We sold a couple of thousand copies and I made a bit of money from it. To be honest, it cost me way, way more uh, to produce it. But what I got back from that book and the project, I, 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 could, never, I could never buy that. What I experienced by doing that book was a complete creative change. Uh, I created something out of nothing. I wrote a book, and which I'm really, really proud of. Every time I give that book to people, I'm really proud of what it is because I think it's a well-constructed, well-designed, uh, carefully crafted piece of, uh, of artistic work. And it represents something of a city that I absolutely love. But more than that, it represents uh, a passion, a following of dreams, a following of 
wanting to make a change in my life. And as a result of that book, it led on to various jobs, which all led to this job, uh, the job of being a pitch coach. So without that book, I would have just followed that corporate life. I would have gone back into that corporate life. Maybe I would have gone back to Canon, who knows? Uh, I even took a couple of jobs not long afterwards, but by that time, I was completely unsuited for purpose. I needed to work for myself. And that's what I did. I found something uh, that I was also passionate about with pitch coaching. So if you come back to that starting point, that farewell party, I'd stood in front of people with no plan at all and said, I'm going to travel the world. I hadn't bought any tickets. I didn't know where I was going to go. I didn't have a plan. I'm going to write a book about Amsterdam. I'd never written a book. I didn't know what I was going to write about. And I'm going to create a coaching company. Yeah, coaching what? (laughs) I had really no idea. But once again, you can't steer a ship that isn't moving. So I set a goal. I went for it and decided to see what would happen along the way. And what happened? Everything changed. Every single thing in my life. My personal life Uh, my work life, uh, the ability to create things. You know, once you write one book, the great thing is you can write more. And my new book called Blue Moon Pitch is almost finished. Now, that process has been so much easier than the first book. But the great thing is rather like doing a marathon. If you've done a marathon, you know you can do something really hard and you can do it again. When you've written a book, you know you can do that hard thing and you can do it again. It's a great piece of of confidence that comes from having written that book. So there's so many aspects of that project that enriched my life, turned me into a different person. I met creative people, interesting people, people who have different background to me. Uh, I met artists who were doing uh, great work and yet uh, were earning next to nothing. And I spoke to famous comedians and actresses. I spoke to people who were uh, protesting, who were in Parliament. All kinds of characters, and this enriched my own life. But most of all, I met my wife. I decided to have kids. And for that, I'm extremely grateful for Amsterdam, the essence. In conclusion, if you ever have an opportunity to go for your dreams... Think about that phrase, you can't steer a ship that isn't moving. So put your marker down, think about where you're going and go for it first, make the plans as you go. And this is classic startup life. You know, startup life is build, measure, learn. That means going for something, having a dream, having an ambition, but keep adapting, keep pivoting, keep adjusting along the way, bring in the resources that you need to reach that dream, but never lose that dream, because it might take you to places that you really don't expect. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the end of this unusual uh, episode of the Essential Pitch podcast. It's all about Amsterdam, the essence. All the links are in the show notes. But if you look for best3minutes.com slash essence, you'll find a PDF of the book and you'll find uh, some other materials, the resources with the videos, uh, with uh, uh, some other stuff in there. And I'll see if I can put in a few clips of some of the recordings because they're they're kind of fun. Um, and 
yeah, it's a, it was quite an experience. I hope that you enjoy uh, hearing about this story, and I hope you can find your dreams, set your goal, get the ship moving, and steer along the way. And next week, we'll be back to the topic of pitching, public speaking, and we're going to be talking to David Arnu, who is the founder of The Growth Tribe. I'm looking forward to talking with him and sharing that great story with you. Thank you.